Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, believer, walk, Hello, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the three most important news items of the past seven days. The three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad, of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it disappears. I also know how much there is to know these days, and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today, we'll cover the following three news items. 53 migrants trapped in a semi-truck in San Antonio die. The January 6th hearings welcome a new witness. And religious freedom prevails in the Supreme Court again. But first, I want to take a moment, or a few moments, to remark upon this uncelebrated day, the 2nd of July. This is a day on which, some 245 years ago, our young nation, which wasn't technically a nation, declared her independence from her colonial mother, Great Britain. No, no, I didn't misspeak. It is the 2nd of July, not the 4th, on which we should focus our attention this holiday weekend, to which we should all direct our patriotic exuberance, raise our hamburgers and hot dogs and drink our beers. And yet, an appreciation of the importance of the 2nd of July, 1776, is wanting. Remember, prior to the Second Continental Congress's meeting in Philadelphia that summer, America's War of Independence had been going on for a little over a year. The first battle, that of Lexington and Concord, broke out on the 19th of April of 1775. In the succeeding 14 months, battles were waged across the entire continent, from Quebec to Boston to the Carolinas, all the way down to the Bahamas, if you can believe it. You might be surprised to know that, up till the summer of 1776, the notion of complete independence or a radical separation from the English crown wasn't one behind which there was unanimous support. Quite the contrary. Early in the conflict, many colonists were mm, disquieted by the prospect of severing their ancient connection to England, the most powerful empire since the Roman Empire, toward which they still felt a strong affection. Indeed, an almost filial warmth. Poll could have been conducted at that time. Like the daily online surveys to which we are always urged to respond, it might have shown the following. A third of the colonists in support of independence, 
a third opposed, and a third scrolling TikTok, uninterested in and indifferent to the whole thing. Among the state delegates to the Continental Congress, to which one of my favorite cities, Philadelphia, was home, there was a great deal of ambivalence. Many held to the not unreasonable hope that reconciliation with England was not only possible, but preferable. They merely wanted the restoration of their proper rights as British subjects, rights of which, be it through the Stamp Act, the Quartering Act, the Quebec Act, the Intolerable Acts, etc., they felt themselves unjustly to have been deprived. As is the American way, debate between the two sides was impassioned and vigorous. It wasn't only between royalists and republicans, but between revolutionaries and reconciliationists. Hindsight, we all look back and like to imagine ourselves staunchly on the side of the revolutionaries, but I'm not so sure that would be the case. Remaining with the crown had many advantages, financial, social, and professional, by which, I think, a great number of us would be more than a little enticed. And yet, as we know, the radicals, the separatists, the revolutionaries prevailed. Richard Henry Lee, in June of 1776, wrote his eponymous Lee Resolution. Unadorned by the jewels of Thomas Jefferson's dazzling eloquence, Lee's resolution was a straightforward document that declared, in no uncertain terms, the Thirteen Colonies' independence. Though not a legally effective document, it was a good start, and it aroused in the delegates an urgency to put down something forceful, if not historical, in writing. Impressed by the spirit and directness of Lee's resolution, and though hesitant to adopt it in full, the Congress decided to appoint a committee of five, a group of men among whom we count some of the greatest names of our founding era, to explore the idea more thoroughly and, if suitable, produce a draft declaration of its own. Led by the prodigiously talented, if somewhat morally flawed, Thomas Jefferson, a young, aristocratic Virginian of only 33 years, the committee included an aged but brilliant Benjamin Franklin, the trenchant and fearless John Adams, Connecticut's Roger Sherman and New York's Richard Livingston. Imagine any one of our modern-day committees, like the celebrated Select Committee to which the investigation of the events surrounding January 6th have been assigned, being populated with so many men of merit and undisputed genius. What a country it would be. Jefferson, the uncontested leader of the five, immediately got to work drafting what would eventually come to be known as the Declaration of Independence. Borrowing from philosophers ancient and modern, ranging from Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Hobbes, Grotius to Montesquieu, while also drawing some inspiration from his fellow Virginian, Richard Henry Lee, Jefferson finished our nation's great charter of freedom in just over two weeks. I've known people 
It would take longer to compose a single Facebook post or Instagram reel. On the 28th of June, Jefferson's draft was sent to the Congress, by whom it was closely reviewed and amended as the delegates deemed fit. Jefferson, assured of his own work's immaculacy, bristled at the thought that it might suffer the disgrace of a collective editing. The world's not yet known a genius who wasn't commensurately vain. Finally, on the 2nd of July, 1776, the Continental Congress, convinced by the strength of Jefferson's arguments, intoxicated by the fumes of his eloquent, graceful pen, and, above all, lifted by the giddy spirit of a just, providential, and momentous revolution, a vote was held. The delegates, to their everlasting merit and fame, voted to be free, for which we, their posterity, wholeheartedly thank them this weekend, and every weekend, and every day, and every hour, we breathe this air of liberty. Over the course of the next few days, the Declaration underwent further changes, both in style and in substance, by which Jefferson, like any author fiercely partial to his original work, was none too pleased. It was important, however, for him to condescend to the wishes of others. Such a willingness to compromise is demonstrative of a democratic and republican soul. Delegates from the South, for example, urged the removal of his denunciatory tone as it pertained to slavery, an institution by which they still envisioned many more years of profit. Sadly, their desire was gratified, and the following passage was omitted. Quote, he, King George, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people, the Africans, who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither on the Middle Passage. This piratical warfare, this opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. And that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them and murdering the people upon whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with the crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. It's a complicated passage with which we should spend some time, 
and perhaps in a future episode we will. But for now, with the edits complete, the Declaration was adopted in its final form on the 4th of July, 1776. At that point, only one man signed it, John Hancock, President of the Continental Congress. It wasn't until the 2nd of August, 1776, that his big, elegant, unforgettable signature was joined by 56 others. I conclude my celebration of July 2nd by quoting John Adams, a founder of whom I'm very fond. He said in a letter to his distinguished wife, Abigail Adams, quote, The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoca in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Today, the 2nd of July, 2022, we commemorate it as Adams envisioned. To the heavens and set off our fireworks and kneel to the ground and thank God Almighty for these blessings of liberty that we enjoy today. We move on to the three most important news items of the week of which you must be aware. First, 53 people dead in a semi-truck in San Antonio, Texas. On Monday evening, the 27th of June, authorities in San Antonio, Texas, responded to the call of a concerned citizen who'd noticed, some distance away from the office building in which she worked, cries of distress issuing forth uh, from an abandoned semi-truck. The truck, a massive 18-wheel tractor-trailer, was parked on a nondescript side road, indeed, an only partially paved back road beside which, on the truck's passenger side, a railroad track coursed. The abnormal placement of the truck and the anguished sounds resonating from its trailer were, to put it mildly, ominous signs for what was soon to be unveiled. Upon their arrival, the authorities uncovered a grisly, unthinkable scene, a horrible image for which those foreboding signs could but scarcely prepare them. Scores of illegal aliens, migrants seeking shelter in this land, dead or dying in the hot, unventilated, inhospitable confines of the trailer. In total, I tremble to relate, 53 people, 53 fellow human beings perished in the trailer, in the unmerciful, unrelenting heat. This number of needless fatalities, of which, I'm sad to say, very few of us have taken notice, more than doubled the most recent similar event when, in 2003, 19 people died in a trailer. The drivers, who've now been identified as Hector Zamorano and Christian Martinez, crossed a checkpoint at Laredo, Texas, about 150 miles from San Antonio. 
They were traveling, unsurprisingly, from Mexico, from which they apparently collected a multitude of hopeful migrants. Martinez, the younger of the two, may have been waiting to receive the inhuman haul from his fellow Zamorano, who was, according to reports, somewhat indisposed at the prearranged time. He was allegedly high on meth. Uh, two others have been arrested in connection to the crime, Juan Claudio de Luna Mendez and Juan Francisco de Luna Bilbao, residents but not citizens of this country. The passengers, their victims, perhaps our future countrymen, were from Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala. Of the 53 fatalities, 48 were found dead at the scene. Another 16 people, including 12 adults and 4 children, were taken alive and conscious to medical facilities, at which they were treated, according to San Antonio's fire chief. As for the cause of death of the other unlucky souls, it hardly need be stated. The temperature in San Antonio that day exceeded 100 degrees. We haven't a clue when the truck last stopped. There was neither water nor ventilation in the trailer. Air conditioning was a luxury for which these smuggled people couldn't hope. They were, in no uncertain terms, baked alive in the trailer. In response to this heinous crime, President Biden said the following, quote, Exploiting vulnerable individuals for profit is shameful, as is political grandstanding around tragedy. And my administration will continue to do everything possible to stop human smugglers and traffickers from taking advantage of people who are seeking to enter the United States between ports of entry. He went on to call the event horrifying and heartbreaking. In response to Biden's statement, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said the following, quote, These deaths are on Biden. They are a result of his deadly open border policies. They show the deadly consequences of his refusal to enforce the law. His fellow Republicans' frustration with the Democratic president, Senator Ted Cruz inquired, rhetorically no doubt, quote, How many more people have to die before Dems give a damn? To that question, I haven't an answer. Year to date, though, some 550 people have died trying to cross our southern border unlawfully between the ports of entry through which, according to the law, they're supposed to be processed. For all Americans, whether we live near the border or far, this is a problem. It's as much a humanitarian problem as it is a political one. Migrants are coming to the southern border by quite dangerous means, as is evident from the events of this past week, because they know that, while the getting is good, they should, well, get. Under this administration, they presume, no matter the means by which they gain entry, they're unlikely to be asked or forced to leave. The business of human smuggling which is now entangled with the nefarious, sprawling work of the cartels, is well aware of this situation, from which it reaps immense profits. 
retired their old practice of smuggling drugs across the border. Fentanyl is still flowing into this country almost unimpeded. Second, we move on to the January 6th hearings, who welcomed this week a new witness. The January 6th hearings, over which, since their debut a few weeks ago, enthusiasm seems to have faded, concluded their first phase with a bang. In them was, if only momentarily, rekindled, and we look forward to watching the grand finale, the dazzling denouement in the weeks to come. A compelling, if not entirely credible witness by the name of Cassidy Hutchinson took the stand this week, raising new questions about President Trump's conduct on that infamous day. Hutchinson, an assistant to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, worked in close proximity to Meadows and, through him, the president throughout the course of his tenure. You might hear that sentence and wonder exactly how close she was to the president himself, the man on whose potentially immoral behavior and unlawful activity this committee is supposed to be focused. That, forsooth, would be a good question. The stories that Hutchinson recounted, by which any decent person might be disturbed, were mostly secondhand. That's not to say that they're incredible, just that they're at some distance of removal from what really transpired. Hutchinson, from whom the committee had received testimony a total of four times prior, spoke before the congressman and, now, the nation for the fifth time. And that's quite a lot. Perhaps her inquisitors, our congressmen, were pressing her a bit. In the middle of these inquiries, she's known to have switched lawyers, exchanging a more Trump-affiliated for a more neutral attorney. Aided by an infallible memory, a preciseness of speech, and a display of youthful composure at only 25 years of age, Hutchinson appeared to be a reliable witness. Uh, one of her stories, though, about which everyone's talking, approached the realm of fantastical. She recounted a story relayed to her second hand that President Trump, with the swiftness and gracefulness of a leopard, sprung from the back seat of the beast, the bulletproof limousine in which the president is conveyed, and attempted to grab the steering wheel on which a Secret Service agent had his hands. Now, frustrated by the officer in his attempt to seize the vehicle, Trump then used his free hand to grab the neck of the other agent in the passenger seat of the car. Foul words were exchanged before the president uh, returned to his seat in the back of the car. Now, it's a story in which I wholeheartedly want to believe, if only for its thrill and excitement. Uh, but, alas, it might end up being one around which I simply can't stretch the bounds of my imagination. The mere physics of it strains the possibilities of human contortion. Uh, presumably, uh, Trump grabbed for the steering wheel with his right hand, the dominant side we're first to recruit. Uh, that would leave free and unoccupied his left hand, with which he must have crossed his body and seized the helpless agent's feeble neck. Uh, let's not forget, he's said to have overwhelmed from the back seat of a car two men, two Secret Service agents who are likely 
exemplary fighters. This, while lunging forward in what might have been a moving vehicle. <laughs> and let's not forget, we're talking about President Trump, a man of 74 years of age to whom such things as agility, athleticism, sveltness, and fitness have never been matters of chief concern. Uh, one would think it not unuseful to hear the agent's side of the story, being that they're the ones on whom the 45th president unleashed his backseat assault. As it turns out, they've agreed to make themselves available for testimony. They're willing to subject themselves to the committee in order to refute Hutchinson's story. This, of course, would do some injury to the narrative that's been created. It might not even be worthwhile. The image of Trump lunging to the front seat is already ingrained in my mind. It raises the question, though, of why these agents haven't been questioned before now. This committee was organized over a year ago at the taxpayer's expense, mind you. Never forget that. Whether you agree with it or not, this long stretch of hearings choreographed and produced by a former ABC executive is something for which we are all paying. I don't think it would be petulant of us to demand more for our money. I counted a few other startling stories, for which corroboration is still needed. She testified to having written an important memo, of which another staff member has since claimed authorship. She claimed to have met with and held a conversation with lawyer Pat Cipollone, who apparently wasn't present at the time. The long and short of it is, Hutchinson seems not to be a deceitful person, but she's not a primary witness. Without that, it's difficult to prosecute the case against Trump. And now, the hearings, like a soccer match, are now in their intermission. They'll continue a few weeks from now. And finally, our third topic this week. Religious freedom prevails again in the Supreme Court. In a 6-3 to three vote... The Supreme Court decided in favor of Mr. Joseph Kennedy, a high school football coach in Washington State, who was fired for his personal displays of piety at the conclusion of each uh, football game. Now, after the final whistle of each game sounded, Mr. Kennedy, a veteran, would walk to the middle of the field where, in the presence of his God, he would discreetly kneel down in quiet prayer. He neither encouraged nor compelled his players to join him, but, over time, they did so on their own accord. And, uh, throughout the course of the season, his prayer became more and more popular. It was not only his players, over whom, as a coach, some might argue he wielded too much influence, their playing time might have depended on being in his good and godly graces, but many from the opposing teams who joined him. With Mr. Kennedy's display, the Bremerton School District in Washington was, to put it mildly, displeased. It felt as though he was infringing on the Constitution's Establishment Clause, on the district's secularism, on its happy separation between church and state. Seeking to resolve the issue, the school board suggested that Kennedy pray at a later time, long after the game's conclusion, or in a different location. Kennedy decided against complying with these suggestions, continued praying immediately after games at midfield, and, 
as a consequence of a piety that had now become, in the eyes of the state, obstinacy, found that, for the upcoming school year, his contract had expired. For continuing in his ways, his religious ways, he was dismissed. The court decision, of which Neil Gorsuch was the author, stated that Kennedy's dismissal was not only wrong, but unconstitutional. We end today, this glorious day, the 2nd of July, 2022, as always, with a quote. This is one with which we're not so familiar. It goes as follows, quote, We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Surely I misquote our dear delegate, Mr. Thomas Jefferson, the honorable author of the Great Declaration of Independence. Are the words not, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident? Indeed they are but only at the insistence of Benjamin Franklin, the sage of Pennsylvania by whom Jefferson's rough draft was, for the better, I think, amended. Jefferson, to substitute the word self-evident for sacred and undeniable. It was a suggestion, I think, uh, that Jefferson was wise to heed. It adds a certain musicality to the Constitution, uh, to which we all still sing along today. That, my devoted, indefatigable, faithful friends, we've come to the conclusion of yet another week. Uh, this has been your concise recap. I hope that you've benefited from it in some small or some great way. Um, I hope that you enjoy this holiday weekend and appreciate the importance, the unrecognized importance of the 2nd of July, the day on which our founders voted for independence. And I also hope you enjoy the 3rd and the glorious 4th as well. Let us not take for granted this liberty with which we've been blessed of which we seem so likely to be stripped. Now, please, if you would, subscribe to this channel. At the very least, leave on it a five-star rating. It helps so much with the algorithms on all the podcast platforms of which I make use. And perhaps more importantly than anything at all, uh, if you could, Share this episode and the ones prior to it with some friends. Send it as a link on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or an email. With your help, we can grow this channel. 
and make it something to which everyone subscribes. And also, I'd like you to check out my newest uh, project, Finnerin's Wake for Kids. Uh, series of episodes um, that deal with heroes and myths in a manner that's suitable for children and adults alike. And with that, I bid you all farewell from Finnerin's Wake.